Well, if you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 will be in verses 15 through 17 today. I'll begin by reading the text, and then, as is custom here, we'll go verse by verse, word by word, through this amazing passage. Romans chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, reads this. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In 1867, something interesting happened. A fairly unsuspecting chemical, diamaceous earth, with its properties for filtration and abrasive systems like toothpaste and polishes and facial scrubs, was combined to a very infamous chemical, nitroglycerin. And of itself, diamaceous earth was not that dangerous. It was used as a vehicle for certain things around the home, for, like I said, abrasives and other things. You might use it to war off your scorpions in your house. But when combined with nitroglycerin, when put to a target in a specific place, became a purposeful intention of eruption called dynamite. And so we understood that nitroglycerin in by itself was too dangerous, but that property and that cooperation with diametrous, uh, diametrous, uh, diametrous earth made it be something that could be targeted and could be used for the kernel, the jewel inside whatever barrier it was breaking. That dynamite would be able to break the greatest walls, the greatest mountains. It would be able to gain new ground. It would be able to reach under the surface and find out where the true treasures really are. And as we approach the book of Romans, like Alfred Nobel approached creating dynamite to get to something that was prized, we understand that the prize of our salvation is the righteousness from God. And we understand that as we come into the book of Romans, this is the theme of the entire book. And the theme is summarized up in our passage here today, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. This is the theme of the entire epistle, and this is an epistle that few men venture to preach. It was said of one man that as he got to chapter 13, when he reached the application of righteousness, he stopped preaching because he felt as if he couldn't live out the application of righteousness. But in the beginning introduction of the book, Romans 1, verses 1 through 17, it introduces us to this idea of righteousness. And then as it continues on all the way through chapter 3, the need for righteousness because of our condemnation. In, verses, or in chapter uh, 3 through 5, it goes into the justification of our righteousness, the provision, justification by faith alone. But as we're here in this text, we're going to understand that Paul gives us two truths when preaching the gospel. And it's our need to not be ashamed based off of truth number one in verse 16 or 15 through 16. And that's this, that the dynamite belongs to God. And truth number two, verse 17, is that the source of righteousness is from God. Let us begin our journey in verse 15. Read along with me as I go. Thus, for my part, I am eager to share, to preach the gospel. To you also who are in Rome. He's eager. Are we eager to share with those who are near and far to us? This word eager has the idea of an inward resolve, even though outward circumstances may feel chaotic and disrupting. He feels as though it's his obligation and service and ministry to Christ. He is willing, even though his flesh may feel weak. And that's exactly and precisely how it's used in Mark 14, 38, when it says this, the spirit indeed is willing, is eager, but the flesh is weak. 
And you and I need to understand that our flesh is something that doesn't get us away from being eager to share the gospel, to preach the gospel, lest we be ashamed. The gospel is euangelios. It's that one who bears good news, a messenger of joy. Are we eager to share good tidings, to be joyful publicly and proclaiming a message that can save people? In the time it was used in the early Greek culture, this was even a holiday called salvation. A holiday of Thersippus, where they would get good tidings and good news, and then they would have a three-day feast and celebration to celebrate the news. Are we like that for salvation? When it comes to us, we understand that this is the greatest news we can have because it's about the greatest Savior. It's about Christ's victory over Satan, sin, death, and superstition. It's the good news of God, of Christ's work on the cross. And if we know that truly, we will be eager to preach it to those who are near and who are far. This word crystallized in the Christian language to be understood solely as Christ's word that we are evangelists. It's not used much else or anywhere else, as much as it is used in Christianity, it is to proclaim that soteria, that salvation, that treasure that we are after. It is used in the par excellence, which means that there is no greater use of this word than when it is used in connection to Christ's power upon the cross. And that is which we proclaim. We proclaim no power within ourselves, no power within our modes or methods, only the power within the actual substance that is Christ. So how do we come to understand our mode and method of preaching? We look to none other than Jesus Christ himself. And we look at six particular characteristics of his preaching that you and I can take onto account as well. Broadus comes up with these in his book, The History of Preaching, and discovers that Jesus' preaching was first one with authority. Second, he was one that was relatable to those who were commoners. Third, he understood that Jesus' preaching was controversial and polemic. Fourth, he understood that he repeated teaching often so that people would get it. As my grandfather said, through their thick skull. <laughs> Number five, he taught with a variety as to the place and modes in which he would preach. And number six, his tone and spirit captured the severity of rebuking without the tinge of bitterness. It was direct and simple, yet with tact. It was sympathetic to man, but in complete sympathy with God. And we have to hone our preaching in with the methods of Christ that Broadus brings out to us in the pages of his book, The History of Preaching, so that we don't corrupt it so easily. As is often the case in society, as the case in history, as was the case in Galatians 1 verse 9. As we have said before, Galatians 1 9, So I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, he is to be accursed. We understand that's exactly what happened after the Reformation in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the doors of Wittenberg. Those responded from the Roman Catholic Church with anger, towards this message of sola fide, of sola gratia, sola gloria, sola scriptura, that we understand that it is completely God's message and not ours. We can't taint it. And when the Roman Catholic Church responded to that, they gave accursings towards those who were reformed. The Second Vatican, uh, Second Vatican Council, you will see that we are accursed for proclaiming right here what Romans teaches in faith alone. Because righteousness is from God alone. So let us not corrupt it. Let us rejoice at it. Let us have meals over it. Let us have an inward resolve that is eager to share it with others. Near and far, as it says in the end of verse 15, to you also who are in Rome. Paul here is desiring to reach beyond where he presently is. He stands in the midst of Corinth on his third missionary journey. He wants to go to Rome eagerly. And he is not able to, but he summons them with his eagerness, with his passion, with his pathos to reach the gospel even there. And you and I need to reach beyond Gilbert, even into Albania and other places, to be eager to share the gospel far and near. So how can we be eager? How can we foster this eagerness inside of you and I? 
It first starts by being at the cross daily in our own lives. I was telling some others I prepared this message so that I could go back to the cross, and you guys are just getting my vomit on paper. (laughs) Because I couldn't help but wanting to go back to the cross as ministry got difficult, as things get difficult in life and scheduling. we got to be eager for the cross. Alistair Begg said this, without preaching the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very quickly revert back to faith plus works as the grounds of our salvation. Isn't that true? But we need to understand that our place of eagerness is to go to his place of victory upon the cross of Christ. And to do anything short of that is to deny his power. The dynamite belongs to God. And we need to be eager to share his dynamite, not ours. Verse 16, he continues and he comes up with this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Are we ashamed, brothers and sisters and friends? Are we cowardly? Are we acting as though we're giving a message from somebody who's morally abased? The traditional use of this word and the root meaning was used for people that were publicly set out before others to shame them because their character and morality was flawed. And when we're ashamed of the gospel, we set out Christ on display as if we're ashamed of him publicly, as if we're denunciating him, our Lord and our Savior, the one from whom the dynamite belongs to, the power belongs to, the nitroglycerin resolves in. The exegetical dictionary of the New Testament says this about this, to confess the gospel means to not put shame before God and humankind, and therefore to have no need to be ashamed of the gospel, no matter how offensive it's its form or its consequence. It's used exactly the opposite of one who is confident in Christ in 1 John 2.28. 1 John 2.28 reads this, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Are you confident in the gospel? Are you confident in your humanitarian efforts? The only way to not be ashamed is to avoid making what I understand to be these three mistakes, and maybe you can help me flesh these out further and greater. But when we're ashamed, we get these three things wrong. We take our eyes off of the converter, Jesus, and put our eyes on the conversion, the person, Jesus Christ. That's where we get into decisionism rather than discipleship. Number two, we misplace our role and become the Savior in evangelism. And number three, we misplace our understanding of the character of the Savior, who is the only one who is truly intrinsically righteous, not you or I, who is working. He's righteous in flesh and in deity. And we have to ask ourselves, are we misplacing our role Are we taking our eyes off of the converter? Are we misplacing our understanding of the character, the intrinsic qualities of Jesus Christ? Because if we are, we are ashamed. He gives a direct object of the gospel here, that we are to address the gospel and be confident in it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, we're confident in the gospel because the gospel isn't something that invites us into a great search or quest like philosophy. It's an announcement, it's a revelation, it's an unfolding and unveiling, and I would add this, it's an explosion of God's truth of righteousness in the hearts of man. What else could be more powerful to break the veils, to gain new grounds, to reach deep beneath the earth of my sin, of my stoned, calloused heart, and to get to the kernel of righteousness from God in my life that I may reveal that to others through living by faith. There's nothing more powerful in the world than the dynamite of God. Paul would sum up the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 10 as this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand. That's conviction. By which you also are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Go down to verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He was weak in the flesh, guys. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, David Lupinetti is who he is. By the grace of God, you are who you are. But whether it is I or they, so we preach and so you believed. We continue on in being eager for the gospel because we may be ashamed of ourselves, but we're not ashamed of God. And when we look in a right introspection, a healthy view of God, we have a healthy view of ourselves. There's nothing to be ashamed of because we have the righteousness from God. We may make mistakes, but that doesn't have anything in comparison to the positional justification we have, the forensic declared righteousness which we have been given from God. There's no shame in that. What might it look like to be ashamed in our ministries or in our missiology or in our evangelism? Well, it may look like this, replacing the cross for a kitchen. Or replacing holiness for a home. Or repentance for cowardly respect. Or, in other words, exchanging the creator for the creation. That's a theme that Romans seems to build on after this verse. It's overemphasizing the physical needs to those who are impoverished when they're really spiritually bankrupt. It's arguing apologetics and never sharing the offensive gospel. It's wanting to please people in ministry. And I'd like to use an illustration that points this out from a former professor, or a professor at Master Seminary. He wrote in an article in the Master Seminary Journal called Regaining Our Focus and Missions. Brian Biedebach says this. He worked alongside Joel James. He was a missionary to Malawi for 19 years. He set up churches. He planted a Master's Academy International. And in 19 years, his gain for focus and ministry was still wanting to be on the preaching of the gospel by those who were rooted in churches. And he found in his dissertation research of a survey this, that only 37.5% of missionaries were pastors, evangelists, and Bible teachers. But 62.5% of them were meeting physical needs, and the majority of those were not plugged in to local churches. Santan Bible Church, is there power in that missiology? What does that say? Are we ashamed or are we bold? We need to solve in our minds that food can't solve the problems of greed, corruption, idolatry, and pride. Only the dynamite of God can break through those walls and reach the kernel of righteousness that is revealed to us. We have to make sure that our source is appropriated in God's righteousness. Our source is appropriated in God's message and not ours. D.L. Moody said of this particular ideology. Christians should not go into the world with a loaf of bread in one hand and the Bible in the other, lest sinners take the loaf and ignore the Bible. We have to be careful about our missiology. We have to be careful about how we preach the gospel. We have to be like Ignatius in the second century, one of the apostle John's first disciples. He was given the appointment of bishop of Antioch after the apostle Peter. And when passing through Asia, he was contained for preaching the gospel. He was detained. He was going to be persecuted. And even in his persecution, he would strengthen and confirm the churches with his exhortations and preaching of the word of God. He said this as he passed through Smyrna. He wrote to the church of Rome, the same city that this book was written into. He said this, now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Jesus Christ. I am the wheat of Christ. I am going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. 
This is a man who lived literally and spiritually in the grindstone. Do you and I? Or do we shrink away? Do we become ashamed of this message that is pure so that we can be found pure bread? Is our message based upon a message that can make a man live like Ignatius and not be ashamed of the gospel? reaching the spiritual needs of all those. Ignatius was not concerned about meeting his physical needs. He was concerned about reaching and fighting to the end. Are we pure bread, brothers and sisters and friends? In a church this size, we would be naive in ministry to assume that every single soul in the chairs of this church today is saved. We would be naive to not think that there are tares among the meat, or among the wheat, not the meat. <laughs> There are tares among the wheat here and now. That if we were put through the grindstone, some would yell, quickly, save me and get me back to my American dream. Save me and get me back through means of another philosophy. But not you and I, because we have to be one who understands that the gospel saves us from deliverance from an angry God saves us from the judgment that is way worse than any persecution we could deal with today, which is an rest and eternal, not a rest, but an unrest and an eternal fire that abides on us forever. This is the message we give to them so that we can be like Ignatius, verse 16. We understand the dynamite belongs to God because it is the power of God for salvation. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek this word power is where we derive the English term dynamite and dynamics from. It's been used of philosophers for years. They've been trying to understand where the power is and what it lies behind and what makes us able to get beyond circumstances and boundaries. It's interesting, Job used this term in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to understand the idea of not being able to get past the circumstances, to be incapable to be in an ability to have incompetence in delivering himself. But God is the one who is able. God is the one who has the power. God is the one with the dynamite. God is the nitroglycerin to our dynamite. We are just the diamaceous earth, the carrier of that power. And God deals with the entire explosive results of righteousness. We understand that other religions and philosophies have been trying to steal and rob God of his power and salvation for eternity. One form of them was Posidonis, a Greek philosopher who started to approach upon this idea of the power, even using the word dynamis, even using the word dynamis to understand that there is something in the microcosms and macrocosms of the universe that holds everything together. Although he would understand that there is a central force, a deity that holds it all together, he did not arrive at Christ and acclaim that power to Christ. The development of the Greek concept of God came beginning in the Stoics to understand that God was some, or somebody who had the power of the dynamis, but it was an invisible, self-originating, self-moving force of the cosmics of the world. They equated that idea of the cosmic force with deity, and they arrived at a universal pantheism. We understand that Plato and Aristotle arrived at a transcendent being from understanding and ascribing this idea of the dynamis, that it would be individual gods and universal force. That's why we see that play out so much in Greek philosophy, but it resulted in polytheism. So for you and I, when we look at the dynamite, the power of God, let it not be us where it results in pantheism or polytheism, but let it result in theism of God alone. We have to understand that the result of the power of the gospel is the result in honoring God because he is holy and we are not. He is just and we are not. He is perfect and we are imperfect. And we need a holy God because we are sinful and we are set up from the beginning of our inception to be judged before him. We're not in a stance where we work towards an approach of him. We are made right from him only by his means and his source, his righteousness. So what exactly, if I haven't made it clear enough, is that idea of righteousness? Where is it going to come from? Romans 1.20 tells us we, we miss it because we're unrighteous. We start out unrighteously. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We start off in an unrighteous state, guys. We start off not knowing who he is without being given the source. We know him for enough to be judged. We don't know him for enough to be saved. So we are saved from God. And because of our total depravity, not our far-off depravity, not our worse-off depravity, but our total-off depravity, we need saving because God is angry at our sin, and justly so. When we preach to others, we do have to remember that we are not just at being angry at their sin. Only God is. We're the carrier of that message. That total depravity isn't saved and restored based off of our own expectations of what we need or what we believe we need, but it is solely found in connection with Jesus Christ and his power, his dynamite on the cross. The dynamite belongs to God's work on the cross through Christ Jesus. It is a supernatural, eschatological sense of what Paul wants us to unveil is that Christ gave us the gospel and power lies in his message and his source. Salvation consists in the righteousness affected by God, Romans 10.10. That election in the New Testament is a certainty for those who are elected. It is a righteousness granted, and it finds its goal in deliverance, salvation from all eternity. And God planted that in the foundations of the world before the beginning of time. Ephesians 1. So what is given to us to exactly be made right before God? I mean, how could a sinful, unrighteous, unholy David Lupinetti stand before a perfectly just and holy God? That's the question for all of us. Well, we understand that we need to be given faith. In the order of salvation, we realize that faith needs to be granted to us in order for us to be justified. And again, faith is not a result of our doing but a result of God. Faith is not actions that we do that lead us to happiness. Faith is not an invitation of believism one time and avoiding the church the rest of your life. Faith is not works. It's not personal worthiness. But what faith is is a legal repentance given to you, granted to you, by God to convert you so that you may be justified, declared right, forensically credited the righteousness from God so that you can stand before him. And that's why we're not ashamed because it doesn't come from us. How could we be ashamed of something that has nothing to do with us in the first place? That would be to be ashamed of Christ's work on the cross. The only way to be demonstrating an explosive power in the ministry of gospel proclamation is to understand that we are not the explosion. We're not the nitroglycerin. We are the carrier, the diamaceous earth. And when pointed in an appropriate place, we do break grounds. We do turn stone into flesh. And we do make a self-righteous heart into a heart that lives by faith. And that is the work of Christ and Christ alone. And then Christ adopts them into into their family. Then he sanctifies them. Then they remain and persevere in Christ. And then they are glorified. Nothing more powerful in the world than God's power in salvation. You could set a hundred miles from the sun because of a technological invention. And that would not be more powerful than God's revelation of justification in our lives. The dynamite belongs to God. It doesn't belong to philosophers. It doesn't belong to us. We are just carriers of it. To be explosive in your ministry, you have to understand that. In having those to take care of for the first time in my life, Ryder, and in a few weeks, many of us, I believe five or six of us in this church, will have to take care of another young baby another young, innocent child, so we think they're innocent. (laughs) But they set off on a journey totally depraved. That's not offensive to me. They set off on a journey that is in need of so many physical things. Our baby Benjamin will need diapers, and thank you guys for the baby shower. 
Our baby Benjamin will need changes. He'll need baths. He'll need food. He'll need sleep. He'll need warmth. He'll need care. He'll need clothing, cuddling, kisses, catechisms, and Bible reading and training. But in all of that, I know as a father, as a spiritual father, I know that as a parent, and you know as the church, he needs one thing far more. He needs a Savior that will deliver him from his sin. He needs a Savior that will not condemn him because it's not on the basis of his righteousness, but the righteousness imputed to him from God, not from you and I in familiar rights. The power belongs to God in the salvation of Benjamin if he's elect, not in my ability to share that with him. I pray the Lord uses me or you in that pursuit as new children come in. We need to be carriers of that, not the possessors of the power. And it's to everyone who believes. Continue on in verse 16. I'll clearly just brush over any uncertainty you have over this verse. The Greek grammar here makes us aware of two things. That first, belief is qualified, or sorry, everybody is qualified by believing. Second, believing is always in this idea of soteriology, the idea of salvation used in the present active participle. That's Paul's choice grammar to use it. And what that means is this, it's believing. It's not a decision, one-time belief. It's a abiding, continual belief that gets you through life for the rest of your life. There's more to that in verse 17. But it is qualifying those who is everyone. So everyone who continually believes is that who has been given the power from God, the righteousness from God, been erupted with the explosion of righteousness in their life. So is everyone here believing? Is everyone here, if you're believing, sharing that righteousness? Is that continually the base of your life? Maybe you're here today and you've attended church at various times, but you find yourself in and out of fellowship. Abide in belief. Or maybe it was the result of not a belief at all in that one-time decision. That's between you and the Lord to test and figure out. But Paul makes us understand that it's to everyone who believing continues and abides in the church to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the end of verse 16. Here he's saying it's not an order of importance, but an order of chronology, that his covenant chosen people was the nation of Israel. I'm fine by that. I'm a Gentile. Okay. God had wanted to give the gospel to Israel as, their first, as the first fruits. And now you and I are far removed from that for 2,000 years, and we continue to pass it down to those who are Gentiles or who are not Israelites. We understand that both Gentiles and Jews are saved by justification by faith alone. There's no two different views of that. We understand that is what he plays out in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28, which I read to you before. The Jews were not going to be able to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of my obedience to the law that saved me and the power of God that saves Gentiles. No. It was the power of God that saved Jews and Gentiles. And chronologically, that came to the Jews first, and thankfully, it came to the ends of the earth, us as well. But do we have a desire to reach near and far those with the dynamite of God, with the power of God, so that it's God's righteousness to save and not our ability to articulate the message? In MacArthur and Mayhew's biblical doctrine, they say this of God's righteousness. This is the religion of divine accomplishment, whereby God accomplishes righteousness by the holy life and substitutionary death of the Son of God and then freely gives that righteousness as a gift through faith alone. Biblical Christianity is the alone religion, the lone religion of divine accomplishment. When we have eagerness to preach the gospel, it's the power of divine accomplishment. The dynamite belongs to God. As we continue on, we not only see the dynamite belongs to God, but we see that the source of righteousness is from God. Look with me at verse 17. 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteousness man, the righteous man shall live by faith. There's been a lot written on this particular verse in trying to understand it because it can be difficult. But first we understand the source of righteousness is from God. For in it, that is referring back to verse 16, the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. It really should be taken as a genitive of source. The source is from God, righteousness from God. We understand that Romans clears this up in the 33 uses it uses this word righteous, and also from the same root word, the over 30 times it uses the word just, justifier, justification, and justified. That it is a righteousness from God, sourced in God's character, intrinsic qualities, and not ours. We see this play out of words used several times to convey to us that it's not a righteousness from us, particularly in Luke 5.32, it says this, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So it has to come outside of us in order for us to be made right, sinners made right before an angry God. Romans 3.5 uses multiple conjugations of this word, but if our unrighteous, the negation of that word, demonstrates our righteousness, the positive affirmation of that word of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. He continues on in verse 26 of Romans 3. He uses both stems of it to convey righteousness and justice. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. One of the issues with our evangelism is that we try to be one of the just or the justifiers. We try to rob God of his power, of his dynamite in the gospel proclamation. We forget to realize that the source of righteousness is from God. It's not from our ability to figure it out or our ability to choose God in our understanding of faith. We understand in Ephesians 4, it says this, 4.24, And put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. God created in us righteousness from him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that it was him who knew no sin that became sin so that we might become the righteousness from God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's righteousness from God. This is the righteousness that Job was after in Job 9.2 when he said, In truth I know that this is so, but how can a man be made right before God? It's got to be sourced in God, not in any other source. Not in humanitarian efforts or not in our own ability to philosophize or our own ability to apologeticize. I think I just made that word up. (laughs) But the question for us, again, if I haven't made it clear enough, because I want to beat all of us over the head with the gospel today, and especially myself as I go back to the cross, is how can a God who's perfect, without any darkness in him at all, 1 John 1, 5, how can a God who is perfectly righteous, Matthew 5, 48, how can a God who requires perfect obedience to his law, James 2, 10, be in the presence of David Lupinetti? Have you asked yourself that question? And the answer is what we found in Romans 3, 21 through 28, that it's imputed righteousness. That we had to be given a righteousness from God. That it was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For verse 26, the demonstration, I say of this, his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith. He gave us righteousness from him so that we might be able to stand before him and not melt. We think the heat of the summer in Arizona in 110 degree weather with our sunblock and our freckles is strength. That's nothing in comparison to the heat of standing before God. We understand that his righteousness credits our, we credit first our sins to him. 
to forgive us, and then he imputes his righteousness to us. That's double imputation. That is the understanding of righteousness. Our sins go on him on the cross, and then his righteousness comes on us. That's a pretty good forensic transaction. James Montgomery Boyce said this of the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace stand or fall together, and together they point to one central truth. Salvation is all of grace because it is all of God. Because it is all of God, it is for all of his glory. We have a righteousness from God that is the very righteousness demanded by God himself to stand before him. There is nothing more powerful, more dynamite, more explosive in the world than the righteousness from which we received from God in our salvation. Do you feel that excited about your salvation? The day of salvation for me was like a new day. And even if it came to you at an early age, it should feel that explosive in your life. New desires, new time management, new ways of using your time, new ways of spending your money, new ways of joining in fellowship with believers because you are new, because you have righteousness from a foreign, external, forensic source, from an intrinsically right God, and you are a new creature. Charles Hodge, it's interesting when you look at systematic theologies that get to this section and they feel like a gospel message. Charles Hodge in his systematic theology says this of the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ on the grounds of which the believer is justified is the righteousness of God. It is so designated in scripture not only because it was provided and accepted by him, it is not only the righteousness which avails before God, but it is the righteousness of a divine person. Of God manifest in the flesh. God purchased the church with his own blood. The righteousness of Christ, his obedience and suffering was the righteousness of God. This is the reason why it can avail before God for the salvation of the whole world. This is the reason why the believer, when arrayed in the righteousness, need fear nor death or hell. This is the reason why Paul challenges the universe to lay anything to the charge of God's elect. That's a powerful message because it's sourced in a powerful God. We're not gods, we just get righteousness from the God, the deity. And it's revealed to us. Look at verse 17 as he continues on. For the, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. It is revealed to us, that's the same word for apocalypse, apocalypto, it is not kept a secret, guys. It's made open and in the public. Since you've been exploded with righteousness, are you out there and open just as much as God made it clear to you that you needed faith to be granted righteousness before him? Have you made that faith known to others as well? Or is our testimony shying away from that? Are we secretly hiding our faith? Because then we're preaching a different message. Then we're sharing a different sentiment, a different eagerness, a cowardness. Something that's not confident. But when we share the story of our testimonies that an angry God took a sinner like David Lupinetti and a sinner like you and I and gave us righteousness from him that a totally depraved sinner could have the power of Christ to be made right and stand before a holy, perfect God, that's a message worth telling. Not a message about how I lived the rock and roll song and now I came out on top. The message that Ignatius cared about was how Ignatius was saved from an angry God. How Ignatius was saved from the, uh, by the righteousness from God. And that's what he cared about when he faced his last days. What we're after is the righteousness of God in our gospel proclamation. That the dynamite would explode and bring righteousness from him, not from us. There's been so much said about these last parts in the verse, and I just want to clarify this if I can. From faith to faith as is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I take this from faith to faith as a preposition of departure. And what that means is this. From the moment you depart in your salvation story to the moment you land in eternity, it was always faith. Because it was always the righteousness from God declaring you right before him that sustained you and endured you. It is faith alone in your darkest moments and faith alone in your greatest triumphs. 
It's faith alone from the beginning to the end. It's revealed to you that it was necessary for faith, and that faith revealed to you that you had to have righteousness from God. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, it has been a departure of faith to faith. From our beginning to our end in our eternal or in our, our temporary time on earth, it is faith alone. That is why he uses it in a quote from Habakkuk 2.4 when he says, The righteous man shall live by faith. It has the idea of this, that when the Chaldeans were coming in to the nation of Judah, they would face many tough circumstances. Taking their houses away, their temples away, They would lose family and friends. They would lose names. But it would be faith that would get them through day by day. They still may die, yet it's faith alone that continues to persevere in their life. A man shall live by faith alone. This is a reminder for strength and faithfulness from the beginning to the end. John Calvin quoted this. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet faith which justifies is not alone. That assurance of that faith from the beginning to end continues to live within us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The just by faith shall live by faith. The opposite of works is not faith, but the righteousness of God in Jesus. He places emphasis on the intrinsic character of God. If the intrinsic character of God has exploded into your life in an unintrinsic way, righteousness from him, to declare you right before him, then your life will be different. Your faith will be characterized by so many things. We are not intrinsically characteristic of uh, righteousness, but we are imputed righteousness. And that faith lives on like this in Hebrews chapter 3, or sorry, Hebrews 11. For the sake of time, I'll ask that you download my sermon notes this week and go through it clearly. I'm just going to read the 12 things I take away from Hebrews 11 that characterize saving faith. And it's this. Number one, it's a confident conviction. Number two, faith believes that God created the world out of nothing by his voice. Number three, faith is willing to lose that which is closest to you relationally. Faith, number four, seeks to please God, not man, for the sake of God glorifying testimony. Faith reveres God's word for deliverance, not the message of the wicked world. Number six, faith obeys without caution. Number seven, faith relies on God's providence and family matters. Number eight, faith holistically welcomes God's promises in mind, heart, and will. Number nine, faith invests in the future faith of others. Number ten, faith obeys God's commands even when it isn't politically correct. Number eleven, faith doesn't fear man. And number twelve, faith is not without obedient action. We have to ask ourselves, is our faith confident? Does it believe God created the world in six days? Sudden creationism. Is our faith willing to lose relationships? Is our faith willing to seek to please God? Is our faith revering God's word for deliverance? Is our faith trusting without caution? Is our faith relying on God's providence in our family? Is our faith welcoming God's promises? Does it invest in the future of others? Does it obey God's commands even if it's not politically correct? Does our faith not fear man? And does our faith act in obedience? If I haven't made it clear enough to conclude, I want the power of God to be revealed one more time in the gospel message. For those of here who are not saved, for those in the pews today that still need that salvation in their life, that still need to celebrate the good news and the good tidings, the message of the power of the gospel is this, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1, and that God has always intrinsically been perfectly holy, and in him there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5, and that he requires perfection just as God is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. And that even in one instance of imperfection, we are found to stumble according to the law of God, James 2, 10. 
and that we are not righteous and we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. And that we will pay an eternal penalty for it, for the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. And that we cannot save ourselves. It's not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing of his Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 5. And that Jesus came in the flesh and tabernacled among us, John 1.14. That he was perfectly the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. And that according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, he would bear our sins, first imputation, so that he could give us righteousness from him, second imputation, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And that in conquering salvation, raising from the grave, we have a message to declare 1 Corinthians 15, 4. And that all must repent. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked man forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thought and let him turn to the Lord and he will compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And Luke 9, 23 tells us we've got to leave some things behind. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And that today, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Will you repent and believe? All are called to believe. Everywhere, everyone called to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, Acts 17, 30. I pray that be true of some here today. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for the explosion that has happened today in this room. The message, yet simple but provocative, of the nitroglycerin of God's righteousness. We pray that you have done that explosion in the hearts of man today. And we pray that those who are saved continue to go out to be the carriers of that message, the carriers of that explosive gospel message to the ends of the earth, near and far. Amen.